So welcome everyone to our first day of session and just a welcome to our guests John and Faith too who are joining us today, they're residents at Stroud Monastery at the moment. Um, as a way of beginning these talks, the um, title of today's talk is The Development of the Ego and Its Ongoing Self-Deceptions. <laughs> a good place to start. Um, there are many different words that describe um, what's referred to as the five skandhas, which we um, are, are there in the beginning of the Heart Sutra that we um, read over and over again. Um, and as you may remember in the beginning of that sutra, a very important sutra to Zen practice, is that um, we realise that all of those five skandhas are empty. In other words, they're just open and spacious. Skandhas actually mean heaps or categories. And um, the realisation of awakening is to realise there's no categories. No separate categories, anyway. And uh, there are many different ways of describing those skandhas, but they, they are the way of describing in Buddhist psychology how the ego develops. And... Um, According to, I've taken a version of um, uh, Chokyam Trumpa, who, as you know, was a well-known Tibetan Buddhist teacher. Um, and those categories are, are, are ignorance, um, the arising of feelings, the arising of impulses, the arising of intellect, and then an overall arching thing that integrates them all together called consciousness. Mm-hmm. Um, but without wanting to get too abstract about it. Often you can remember these things and relate to them through a metaphor. And a very well-known metaphor in um, Buddhist cultures in Asia is the development of the ego as like a monkey who's been in the jungle and um, the monkey suddenly finds that it's been um, trapped in a house looking out through five windows, through the five senses, sight, hearing, smell, taste, touch. Uh, And uh, if you embellish the story, you can imagine that that monkey's just out freely in the jungle, wandering around and climbing trees and eating and so on. And then it gets shot with a dart. Do you know that drugs it? Do you know? And it it develops amnesia from this, so that when, when it wakes up in this house that it can't get out of, it's like it, it's got a vague recollection of a jungle out there, but it's forgotten. The Lord knows is being in this house, looking out through the windows. Mm-hmm. And then, as we use the term um, monkey mind to describe our meditation at times, the monkey's going from window to window, from one sense to another sense, you know, jumping around all the place. And then what develops? feelings. So there is an attraction to some things and there is a repulsion to some things and there's an indifferent to some things that are coming in through its senses and then it develops impulses to act on those attractions or repulsions so it wants to objectify something and grab hold of it and it wants to push away from something else. And then The monkey, particularly human monkeys, that's us, 
develop intellect you know, and cognition. So we then develop this um, capacity, this linguistic capacity we have to name things and to classify things. And then we develop these huge brains, you know, elaborate, sophisticated brains that can then comment on things and evaluate things and analyse things, you know, and get caught up in all that thinking. And all that too, the ignorance, the feelings, the impulses, the intellect solidifies into this sense of this is me, right? And the final one, consciousness, is a kind of an overall umbrella that kind of integrates all of these things together into me. It perhaps would be best described as not consciousness but self-consciousness. Consciousness that there's a separate self here. And um, so from a Buddhist psychology perspective, that's how this sense of me as a separate identity um, develops. And we've lost sense of the spaciousness of life, the openness of life, um, the fluidness of life, as we're trapped like the monkey in the, in the house. Yeah. But the monkey's looking out through the windows and it's got a vague idea that it'd be a good idea to get out of the house. Uh-huh. Um, and the amnesia is, hasn't totally wiped out its kind of sense, primordial sense, that there's a different way of being. So that's, that, that describes all of us here. You know, that's how we got here, is that we developed this separate sense of I, but we've got this inkling that maybe that's not the true nature of things after all. And then our work, you know, in coming to session and everyday life and doing Zen practice is to start to see into this ego structure and to start to deconstruct it and dissolve it mm-hmm. because it's really only a fiction. Mm-hmm. It's not actually a reality, it's a fiction. You know, as people go through um, practice, and and also as mindfulness has been developed in psychology, and you hear the same terms being used in a in a secular context as real, as well as a spiritual context, people start to get an inkling after doing mindfulness meditation for some time that actually um, I'm not my thoughts. And it's, and it's a great insight that really helps so many people to be able to observe your thoughts and go, I'm actually not that thought. Just because it comes into my mind doesn't mean it's necessarily true or right. It's just a blip on a radar screen that goes through my mind. It's just like, I think Joko, my teacher, refers to as energy fragments going through the mind that we don't have to invest in. So it's just a stream of consciousness goes past and we realise we're not those thoughts. And then if we, if we look a little more deeply, and this becomes, again, I think, even more difficult for people to see, but eventually you keep observing your feelings, positive and negative, anger, sadness, anxiety, love, joy, um, you're actually not them either. Uh-huh. They're just a passing array that's kind of like just the weather patterns of the mind that come and go. So we disidentify that with that as well. It doesn't mean they're not there, but it doesn't mean they're me. 
or they define me. It's just energy going through me. But then what is the most difficult thing to see into and um, contemporary psychology, I don't think it's caught up to this part yet, but what is the most difficult thing to see is that we're not even consciousness. Mm -hmm. Conscious, there is such a thing as consciousness, but just like there's such a thing as emotions or thoughts, but we're not that consciousness even. And um, Katagiri Roshi, who I've mentioned before, who was um, a well-known Japanese teacher who um, developed Zen in America <coughs> in the 60s, 70s, said that the, that the observer is the last stand of the ego. Those words always make me laugh. Mm -hmm. The observer, here we are, we think we're doing this really good job being an observer, observing our thoughts, feelings, perceptions coming and going. But then that's what we think we are, the observer. There is such a thing as observing, but who is doing the observing? Mm -hmm. Is there a thing inside of you which is you, which is constantly you and solid and never changes and that's the observer? Somehow we're deluded into thinking that that's who I really am. I may not be the thoughts and the feelings, but I'm that conscious observer. Now, if you look at the nature of consciousness, and here I'm dipping into some of my um, training in philosophy when I was a student at Macquarie many, many years ago. Even within a Western framework of phenomenology, it's understood that consciousness is not a thing. Consciousness is a field of awareness. It is always a field of awareness. You're always conscious of something and conscious of the roof, the trees, um, the temperature. Well, you're even conscious of your thoughts and your feelings and your memories, but you're always conscious of something. Consciousness isn't a thing that exists like itself. It's always in relationship. And that is one of the most difficult things to, to understand through practice, is when we're not even that observer that we identify with as me. Yes, there is observing, but it's a field of awareness. But if we solidify around that observer, we're still not free. Mm -hmm. I mentioned it, um, I think I mentioned this koan again at, um, at sitting in North Sydney the other day. But the koan, you who sit on the top of the 100-foot pole, take a step in the ten directions and show your whole body. The top of the hundred-foot pole is this step-by-step -step development of practice you, and an achievement, you know, like development through practice until you think you're there. You think sitting on top of the pole after you've climbed, climbed the pole, that's it. Jump. Uh-huh. Still holding on to this sense of I'm the observer. Mm -hmm. You need to jump. Great sacrifice involved, isn't there? Great risk. Great faith in jumping off the top of that 100-foot pole. So, that is how the ego develops. Mm -hmm. And then what we need to look at 
is its ongoing self-deceptions and its ongoing self-deceptions actually as we actually engage in spiritual practice, Zen practice. Here's a really good quote from Chogyam Trumpa in his book, um, Cutting Through Spiritual Materialism. Self-deception is a constant problem as we progress along a spiritual path. Ego is always trying to achieve spirituality. Ego is always trying to achieve spirituality. Mm -hmm. Good point. Like trying to become a witness at our own funeral. Mm -hmm. Um, If I speak uh, autobiographically on, on this if I, if I think back to in terms of my um, training. So I'm sort of mid-twenties and I've finished a degree etc and, and um, I may be going to embark on a career as a psychologist and I give all that up for a time, an indefinite period of time and I go overseas and I study and so I give up doing further higher education or developing wealth and so on and um, to, to put my efforts quite, quite strongly into something else which is called Zen practice in my choice of spirituality. But then what happens? Do you know? You do all this hard work expecting to achieve something called enlightenment. Right? So you've replaced one goal of wealth and status and so on for another goal, which is to become enlightened, you know, or to become an enlightened person, whatever that might <laughs> mean. Mm-hmm. And so the ego, as Trumper says, the ego is always trying to achieve spirituality. Right? That's where we start from. And, um, and then other things happen along the way. So you become a, I become a vegetarian because I want to be kind to animals. And then I find after being a vegetarian for a while that I'm morally superior to people who aren't vegetarians. You know, so, so the ego latches onto this identity of being a vegetarian. And also, by the way, I do Zen Buddhism, not... Tibetan Buddhism or Vipassana or other form. I do Zen Buddhism, but that's really, you know, that's really the cool one. You know, so so you so then the ego latches on to that as well. Somehow I'm a little bit better, you know, because this is what I do. Mm-hmm. And um, and so you can see that's that's the self-deception of the ego trying to Trying to, it's trying to break out of its prison, but it's just sort of keeps on constructing the prison. Mm-hmm. And um, on and on it goes. And I think I've used this metaphor before, but it's, um, it's like, you know, when you, um, you, you, you give up an addiction and you end up finding you're in a, in a different addiction. You, know, you, get, you get, say... Um, um, heroin addicts giving up heroin only to become alcoholics, you know, and then they give up that and they get addicted to ice or whatever. Or you then you go to AA and you become addicted to AA, you know, become, you know, surrender all your family life and everything, you become a workaholic for AA, you know. 
And it's like, it's like when you've got chewing gum on, on your fingers and you pick it off with the other hand and it sticks there, right? And then you pick it up with some other fingers and it sticks there, right? And, um, but that's, that's the nature of it. It's kind of funny. Yeah. Um, but the ego is always trying to achieve spirituality until it sees through that silly game. You know? Um, it's like somehow you have to go through all of this. That's where we start from. We start having an ego and, and the ego wants to achieve spirituality for itself because it's decided that would be a good thing to have. Right? So that's, that's where we all begin. You know? We share that humanity. It's not as though we can just suddenly drop it all of a sudden, this habit. Um, but as we mature in practice and as... And as life kicks us in the guts a few times, you know, we, we, we get a different experience and something more humble, you know, starts to actually evolve. And we're not so caught up in being spiritually ambitious. Mm-hmm. But it gets you going, gets you starting, gives you the first steps on the path. <clears throat> Um, a really good definition of mindfulness that I came across recently, um, and it's very, very simple, and it puts into words much more simply something I've been trying to say myself for some time, is that um, Barry Madgett, who some of you know, is a um, Dharma brother of mine and Zen teacher in the Ordinary Mind Zen School in New York, in a little forum about people were talking about what's mindfulness. And he said, well, my view of it is, is that it's purposeless attention. And I thought, Barry, you're right on the mark there. Now, purposeless attention is just another set of words, another set of concepts, but I think it points us in a better direction. Because we can practice mindfulness in order to be a better person or to increase our wealth or to be better at sport or to be a better public speaker or a better musician or whatever it might be um, and there's a sense of achievement that might come from that and we may practice mindfulness with that purpose in mind or we with the purpose of overcoming depression or preventing ourselves from relapsing to depression that can be good good aspects to it um, and there can be some sort of uh, dark nefarious motivations that come from it as well as is illustrated in the book called Senate War where mindfulness was used to in the service of um, the government improving the war effort mm-hmm. so it's mindfulness in the exercise of um, killing other people and defeating other people achieving victory. Mindfulness can be used for various kind of reasons. But as Barry says, purposeless attention doesn't actually have an ambition to achieve anything at all other than to be present. Mm -hmm. That's quite different. So being present is its own reward. 
Um, let's go back to the magpies that I referred to yesterday. Magpies can, can um, make different sounds with a purpose behind it, and that is to shoo off predators or tell other birds and animals, this is our territory, stay away, or to signal distress to one another or whatever. Um, but they, but uh, people who study magpies believe, as I was saying last night, that they, they sing just for the sake of enjoying singing. They just warble, right? Because they like warbling. Mm -hmm. And like I said, that they're our role model. Do you know? It's like we just turn up to be present, um, like the like the magpie just turns up to warble. It's not trying to achieve anything. Mm -hmm. Do you think magpies expect applause <laughs> at the end of each, do you know, warble? Mm -hmm. Thank you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, if, we, if we do this practice um, expecting some kind of applause, whether it's from others or even from ourselves, then it's the ego trying to achieve its spiritual ambition to really solidify itself. Um, a thought, a memory came to mind of actually um, the uh, Irish poet um, Seamus Heaney wrote a wonderful poem about St Kevin, who was a um, Catholic saint in Ireland. And in the poem he says, he's actually holding out his hand like that for days on end, supporting this little mother who's going to give give birth to these eggs to these chicks. So he just holds it out there. And uh, this is the myth anyway. And he labours without reward. Mm -hmm. So doing session, doing sazen, is a labour without reward. Mm -hmm. It's in the spirit of it. And it's, uh, there's a final few words to say about it. Um, to do meditation, and particularly to do a whole week of meditation with the intensity and the spirit and the commitment with which we do it, is ultimately a rather humbling experience. Mm -hmm. And um, because the, the mind, the, the ego that we bring to it wants to achieve, you know, perfect concentration and you know, be perfectly there in the present moment. And, um, and it's aspiring to something, but it's trying to achieve something, it's trying to achieve a goal. And the, ch the goal is always in the future. Mm -hmm. The magpie's just warbling in the present. It's not tr trying to achieve something in the future. Mm -hmm. So, as we try I want you to do it with commitment. You know, there's quite a discipline in in just being present. Um, but recognise it's a kind of humbling experience because we never do it perfectly. Something has to be given up. Something has to be let go of before we can just be present with the suchness of life as it is. 
Thank you.